0: Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your host and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein.
1: And we're live from Funk Futures World Headquarters here in Colorado. Jason Webster's upstairs. I've been relegated to the basement so that we don't hear each other while we're doing this podcast. And Tim is in his kitchen. I think right now. Yeah,
0: so, I'm in the kitchen. Beautiful, beautiful. I think yeah. this is what the, this is the third or fourth one we've done where you've had someone at your house with you, right?
1: Susan Clatt, for sure. Yeah, was the first was the first one, and I was sort of like pushing back on her. Like, she's like, "I've never done one of these. I'm going to come to your house." I'm like, you know, it might be easier if you don't of this, but uh, anyways, that was that was fun. And then Zach Warren, we actually filmed right here at this table. So, there you go. Yep. I like it, but I mean, maybe I need like a more formal studio so I don't have to sit on a different level of the house when, you know, a Jason Webster's here doing the pot. But anyways, well, we, what I see
0: the Funk futures is blowing up. You, you've got to be able to build a little garage studio for yourself by now. Right.
1: Uh, I mean, there's four other people <laughs> that live here that <laughs> that have a say in those kinds of things, but yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's uh it's been fun, you know, Tim. On the on the, we'll, we'll get into this because Jason's actually with a, a an eighteen year old startup right now, but but in sort of a growth mode with with his organization, as is Funk Futures, and I think OVS Group as well, right now. And I think the 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 thing that's fascinating for me is I think I looked on LinkedIn. I've been at Funk Futures like outwardly for like sixteen months, and very rarely actually take time to like appreciate the wins. You know, um, it's you're constantly focused on what could go wrong. When is the other shoe going to drop? When is this guy going to fire me? Why am I not selling enough? I mean, all the things that you worry about even in sort of like a full-time job and um, just more condensed. But every once in a while when you get a chance to slow down, it's like, hey, man, this has been kind of fun. We built something over the last year and a half. So hopefully it keeps going. Anyways, enough about me. This is Jason Webster time. Jason Webster, Mr. Texas Triangle himself. Grew up in Dallas, went to college in San Antonio, lives in Houston. Jason, why don't you give us a little bit of your background?
2: Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. First off, Jeremy, um, um, you know, appreciate you guys having me on. Um, you know, the proverbial, like, long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, you know, listen to stuff <laughs> of them. You know, had one of my good buddies on um, about a, a couple weeks ago, so I'm excited. Um, so, you know, appreciate you guys having me on. Um, yeah, so who am I? Uh, so you, you kind of mentioned it, Jeremy. I've, other than Austin, I've lived in all the big cities. Um, you know, in Texas, uh, you know, grew up in the suburbs of Dallas. um, Played soccer, a lot of sports, had fun. Um, When I was graduating high school, trying to decide where I want to go. You know, Tim and I, you were we were talking about this a bit. I, you know, looked at A M and and UT, and ended up deciding on Trinity. Um, you know, kind of small liberal arts school. San Antonio is a, a really cool city. You know, small city feel, um, even though it's a pretty big city. Um, went there. Um, you know, was comp sci major. Um, Really enjoyed kind of programming, did it in high school, kind of had a knack for it. You know, always liked the math and science part of the world, um, you know, in the academia side. Um, and, you know, really fell in love with the campus, um, fell in love with the school and, you know, really had a good time. Um, you know, ended up getting a computer science degree, um, graduated in four years. Parents were happy about that. It was only four years. Um, nice. And then, you uh, know, Trinity's, there, no,
0: Trinity's but, no small change Kind of place. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's private. So if you spend extra time there, that's that's a that's a big deal.
2: Yeah, it was a it was a four years, like no more than four years. It was a, was the game plan, and it it actually came to fruition. So that was good.
0: The cool, thing, um, the cool thing about Trinity, I've been down to the campus a few times, you know, a long time ago, but is it's right in the center of a really nice part of San Antonio. Just it's in, completely incorporated into the community around it. It's just, it's a really great area, you know, just to be going to school.
2: It was, it was fun. You know, and, and I know, I'm sure a lot of schools are like this. I mean, it, it is in a really cool area. I mean, like you know, 10 minute drive, you pretty much are pretty, you know, really anywhere you want to be in San Antonio, like time kind of in the, in the center of it, but it's a bubble, right? I mean, when you're at school, you don't, if you don't leave campus much, I mean, you're in San Antonio, but you're in the Trinity bubble. Right. And so it's, it's interesting when you venture out, um, you know, you're in the city, but like if if you stay on campus, like you just feel like you're in the middle of, you know, just Trinity City, not necessarily San Antonio. So it's a, but it's a cool campus. Like we were talking about it a bit um earlier this morning, but it's changed a lot. Like, you know, they've they put a lot of money into it, a lot of new buildings. Um it's a gorgeous campus. But yeah, like I wouldn't change for the world had a had a great time. Um didn't date my wife in college, but she actually went to Trinity as well. So we met and then when I actually ended up coming to Houston, um, you know, uh, ended up dating and married and kids. So, you know, ended up, uh, ended up working out pretty well. So,
1: you know, my exposure being a new England kid and and seeing all this stuff in, in Texas, you know, you've got your Aggies, you got UT, you got Texas tech, a lot of oil and gas. Did, Did you, were you exposed to oil and gas at all when you were in college?
2: Not at all. Um, uh, you know, again, like, so I guess I'll get to it a bit when I ended up come, going to work for Quorum, how I ultimately got exposed to oil and gas. Um, but in San Antonio, you know, it's not your typical oil and gas town. You have Valero that was there. But other than that, um, you know, I, like, like I said, I was I was focused on being a, a comp sci person, right? Program. I didn't care if I was programming for the oil and gas industry, for vacuum cleaners, whatever. It didn't really matter. I was, just you know, enjoyed the programming aspect of it. But yeah, through school, like oil and gas wasn't even a snippet of like what I was expecting or, or looking for. Um, you know, as you get into your senior year and you start doing some interviews, et cetera, I, I did interview with Exxon and thought about going to work at Exxon. So I might have ended up in industry. Um, but, like, you know, that's a big, huge machine. And I wanted, you know, kind of a, a different feel um, type company and, you know, ended up staying in San Antonio and working for a, a nonprofit research firm um, just on the north side of town, um, which is okay. I actually, you know, it was a good first job, kind of get exposed to, you know, kind of corporate culture and, and doing those kind of things. But I was on a, a massive government project. Um, so you can probably, you know, what they were asking us to do, it was a, a, probably a I don't know, 75, 80 person team, you know, and I'm a college grad. I had like this little bitty niche, but it just didn't move fast. It was, you know, government job right so it was slow and yeah. the people are great a lot of really intelligent people but it just it wasn't for me I, you know it took me a couple of years to kind of figure it out but um they actually it's a, it's a pretty cool company like they do a number of things you know tim was just kind of joking when you drive down the highway you see monkeys and every time you hear about this company they have a bunch of different departments right and so they do a lot of research um, yeah, and everyone I mean, knows about the monkeys
0: when i was a kid in san antonio we were we would uh if you drive down 410 i think it is. And you just see this dome close to the freeway, surprisingly close to the freeway, okay. with a bunch of monkeys just sitting up inside it. You know, and it's not the zoo. And it says Southwest Research Institute or whatever it is. And we, you know, we always, you know, we're going to play football in various places and we drive by it and always wonder what the hell's going on. I hope those monkeys aren't getting you know injected with radiation or something. <laughs> but you know, so yeah, that's how I, that's how the city kind of identifies it.
2: Yeah, no, it, it is. In fact, it was funny because, you know, in, in preparation for this podcast, you asked, you're like, oh, that's where the monkeys are, right? So if people know where your Southwest research, the very first question is like, oh, did you work with the monkeys? It's like, no, I was actually in a different, different department. <laughs>
1: but- I didn't know about this at all. That's wild. So-, so, so you started off working not with monkeys, but, you know, not, not too far removed from them. And then quorum, right? Was it right to quorum?
2: Yeah, it was. So I worked there for a few years um, and then a, a guy uh, who actually worked at Quorum at the time, um, Scott Bateman, he's a great guy. He actually is at, uh, I think he's at Amazon now, but anyways, we were, you know, having a beer one Friday night and I was like, yeah, I'm kind of doing this stuff. It's kind of boring. You know, I'm not really, it's not fulfilling, um, et cetera. And he was like, well, hey, you know, we're actually looking to bring some people on at Quorum. Um, you know, we're growing at, at that point in oh. Four is about a forty five fifty person company um so we had you know talked that Friday I flew out on Tuesday interviewed with a couple of guys got a job offer and two weeks later started at quorum so yeah that's a that's how I ended up in Houston right it's like you know they basically said you know you can you can live in Houston or Dallas because they had two offices at the time and you know I hadn't really ever been in Houston I had a lot of friends from Trinity who ended up in Houston so um decided to go to Houston and it you was know, start a quorum so. let's, so
0: your your native quorum, I guess, your original quorum then. So you didn't come in through one of the acquisitions or bolt-ons or anything?
2: Correct. Yeah, when I started, so there's about like I said, forty five, fifty people um in 04, Because you know they started in ninety eight, right? And so um it was early on, right? The acquisitions really didn't start taking off until, you know, really like the last five to seven years or so. Um, but yeah when I started there was I think seven or eight of us in the entire upstream organization. So it was it was early on. Like at that point all we had was a land and you know they had is a land and GIS solution. There was no accounting or revenue or production. Like none of those things existed um, when I started. So it was a uh, it was definitely early you know it was established, kinda of like where I'm at now, Spira. Um, you know, an established solid product, but very entrepreneurial, sort of startup kind of feel. You know, we all have multiple jobs. Um it wasn't kind of the, the big machine it is today for sure when I started. So
1: take me through your, your evolution of, of jobs. Cause you've mentioned this a lot and I think there are still some people there, like, you know, we had Sarush on a few weeks ago, I was out at Connections and seeing the people like, um, at uh, Lindsay, who's been there forever too. So like, what was your evolution in jobs? Was it like you were a sales guy and then you were a land subject matter expert implementer? Like, and I know you eventually ended up as an executive there, but what were the hats that you, that you wore? And then I guess, as we move forward onto Spiro, what are you doing over there?
2: Yeah, no, perfect. Um. So it's interesting, like, you know, like many of us early in the day, Lindsay included, um, you know, Saroosh came on, I guess, a couple years after me, um, you know, convinced him to come work with us. Um, But like, yeah, I mean, like my very first assignment. So I I started at at Quorum. Uh, My very first assignment was doing a data conversion out of an AS400 system into the LAN system for Noble. So, you know, again, like being a comp sci guy, you know, I wanted to be, you know, in the code programming, but, um, you know, really it was. It was doing, you know, PL/SQL type stuff, data manipulation, putting into the system, which was pretty cool because a lot of what I had done before was really more kind of um, UI integration type coding at my previous job, not really kind of data, um, like data manipulation. So it, it was kind of a cool n- new thing to learn, um, learn the system and the business pretty quickly because um, when you're starting to look at data, you're like, you know, first thing is like, you know, what's the legal description? Like, you know, wh- why does everyone care about this acreage? Or like, what are spacing units? Like, so... As you're putting all this data in you have to figure out where to put it you're learning what it is and why it actually matters to these companies um, so for the first year or two you know we did a lot of kind of implementations you know configurations reporting data manipulation integration so you know kind of like the whole the technology side of, of putting in a product for a customer um, but what I quickly realized is I really enjoyed interacting with the customers and actually being not behind the computer right the proverbial Put headphones on, turn the lights off, shut the door, and code for eight hours a day. Like I, I quickly realized that I enjoyed having my technology fix, but really enjoyed interacting with the customers, yeah. solving business problems. Um It was just more rewarding than you know looking at a bunch of lines of code for me. So as we did that, of course we're starting to grow. You know the land product is, is starting to gain traction. At that point, now we're starting to build you know an accounting and a revenue system, et cetera, and so. You know, I, we all did multiple things. So early on, and Sarush kind of alluded to this too. I you know, went and listened to you guys podcast with him, but we all coded and supported and did sales presentations and demonstrations and made coffee at times. Right. I mean, like we all kind of did everything. Um, but mm-hmm. as we started, mm-hmm.
0: no furniture, mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, but like, as we started getting bigger and getting more people, we had to get more of a, you know, a true organization management kind of structure in place. Um, And at that time, so my original mentor um, was Gary O'Dwyer. Um, He actually was at Chevron for 20 plus years. That's where the land system, Quorum's land system came from, right? It was at Chevron, built at Chevron. And so he came over to Quorum when Quorum acquired it um, in the early 2000s. um, And he really showed me the ropes. Like he taught me like how to to engage um, with customers, like how to go about business, like how to think about P&L, like really like. You know, not just like here's a here's how you put a system in, but how to think about the bigger picture. Um, and then really gave me a lot of opportunity to to start running projects, running multiple projects. Then ultimately, you know, kind of started running the land and revenue practice. And then eventually, um, I don't know, it was probably 2010, 2012 ish timeframe. Um, you know, we I ended up taking over and running the entire upstream vertical for about six or so years. So. That's where, I mean, I really enjoyed that because it was, you had responsibility for the development and product direction, the sales and marketing aspect of it, the implementation and support. So it, it really was like kind of running a business unit or a business within a business. And I learned a ton, a lot of it the, the hard way. Unfortunately, you know, make some mistakes and, and learn, but you know, it was, in, it was in the heyday. We were, we were growing rapidly and, um, it was a lot of fun and you know, have lifelong friends and learned a whole lot of stuff, but. The exposure I got to the oil and gas world at Quorum you know, was immense. Like, I mean, I, I know a lot about upstream. You know, midstream pipeline you know, isn't necessarily my, my pedigree. You know, I didn't really focus on that much, but just how the business runs, like all of our customers, like having access to you know a way hundreds of different companies run their business, like they all think they're different. they're very similar, right? with some nuances. But it was really cool to actually learn about the oil and gas world. Business problems, how people address it, and and really, there's not necessarily a right way to do certain things, but there are definitely wrong ways. And I learned a lot of a lot of different ways of, you know, just because you think it can be done and should be done this way, there's there's other ways it can be done just as well. And so, I I learned a whole lot at Quorum, um, and you know, enjoy my time there. So when
1: I think about Quorum, at least in the, you know, the first half of your tenure over there, I I viewed it at that point like tips dominated the market, right? Like midstream was completely owned transportation, gathering pipelines. That was Quorum's thing. And then started to see some land, particularly at companies who were bigger, right? So like the companies like Devon or Continental who had SAP would naturally sort of just default and go to Quorum land. So carved out that niche of like Quorum land is the elite land solution in the market, right? With Spira, who is a, you know, funk futures client and, and a really interesting, promising organization. You're focused less on, I would say, sort of the back office ERP type of stuff and much more in the field. Did you have opportunities when you were at Quorum to work with the field, or were you mostly focused on the back office? And what are some of the differences you see in selling to field remote services folks, contractors versus CFOs and controllers up in the Ivory Tower?
2: Yeah, no, great question. Um so at Quorum, you know, as are the acquisitions, you know, that Tim, you were kind of alluding to, you know, started, right, you know, kind of with fielding and the field data capture and SCADA solutions, you know, those are more production field kind of focused solutions. Um, I wasn't really, I mean, I knew about them, you know, I knew how they fit in our portfolio, but wasn't necessarily involved. So it, when I came to Spira, it was sort of a, a, I call it career 2.0, but it was different, right? I mean, Working with the back office, you know, it's always kind of the executives, typically the C-suite. It's the ones who are doing a lot of the bean counting and decision making, not necessarily doing the day-to-day operations. Um, at Spira, that's exactly what it is. So it's been fun because um, it's been, it's very similar, right? I mean, software, software, you, you got to build it, you got to sell it, you got to implement it, you got to support it, right? And so it's very similar. And so, you know, what I learned at Quorum has been very valuable for me um, in, in my role here at Spira. Um, but it is different. Like you're, you're working with the field guys um, and a lot of them, you know, they roll up their sleeves or getting their hands dirty and like they're the ones doing the actual work. Um, not to say that the, you know, the operators or, you know, kind of the, the back office people aren't, it's just a different world um, servicing the same market. Right. So it's, it's been interesting. And then, you know, the, the kind of sales process or how it works, it's a much faster cycle, which is actually really refreshing. Right. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have filled out thousand plus requirement RFPs that you kind of wonder if they're actually ever reading them, right? I mean, because they (laughs) all look exactly the same. I I think there's kind of a a joke, right? People take those requirements and then re-jumble them so you can't copy and paste and make you fill them out every single time. Um, But this is a lot more kind of relationship-based, you know, have a quick conversation. What's your problem? Okay, here, let me show it. And then sounds great let's sign and off you go right and you know the difference too is you know, you know kind of the world's changed you know you don't have these multi million dollar projects implementing software they you know everyone likes off the shelf turnkey software these days they don't like big upfront capital projects um and so ours you know at spirit i mean it is it's it's a here's the software you know we do a lot of you know some configuration in to to make it match your your business um train you and off you go so i mean it, it's a it could be up and running within a couple of weeks Sometimes it's a few months, depending on the complexity, you know, integration, et cetera. So it's been refreshing to kind of have sort of a, a quicker, true SaaS, cloud-offered software offering, you know, being kind of a software company, not a, not a consulting company that consults and implements software. Um, so it's, it's, it's been different, um, but I've, I've enjoyed it. Um, you know, the people I work with are amazing um, at Spira. You know, in fact, how I ended up at Spira, um, so Kevin Lubbrook, our CEO. Um, he actually was at Quorum as well. Um, and I think it was like 07, 07 to 14, maybe, um, in the Canadian office at Quorum. And so I spent quite a bit of time in Calgary at Quorum, you know, trying to help build the upstream business in the Canadian market. So I did a lot of work with Kevin. And then, you know, when it was time to part ways with Quorum, you know, took some, took some time and ended up reconnecting with Kevin. And, you know, he said, hey, I need someone to come be an executive and build and run the U.S. brand for us. Um, you know, and it after, uh, you know, some back and forth, it, yeah, you know, it was too good to be true. And, you know, I, I ended up here at Spira. So it's it's been awesome.
0: Looking at the dates on LinkedIn, it looks like that was kind of right in the throes of the whole COVID, uh, you know, everybody trying to figure out what's going on with COVID. So what was it like making, taking time off and doing a career change right in the middle of COVID?
2: You know, it was tough. Um, you know, because obviously COVID hit everyone, right? March 2020. Um, I ended up leaving Quorum in October of 2020. So, you know, in Texas, it it was a lot less locked down at at that point. Come October, right? I mean, people weren't necessarily going back to the office, but it wasn't complete lockdown like it was the first three months of COVID. So, it was a little bit easier at that point, right? I mean, still wearing masks and all that kind of good stuff, but it, it wasn't like you know you're locked in your house. But that being said, you know, when I when I left Quorum, it took some time because you know, when you're implementing software, you know, they're a software company, but you're also doing a lot of consulting. And so I did a lot of soul searching and played a lot of golf while searching said soul. (laughs) There you go. I I couldn't, I I was trying to decide, do I I want to do another software gig? Do I want to do like, you know, traditional consulting, right? Like coming in business process stuff or whatever, or, you know, do I want to go work in industry? Um, And I had all those opportunities, but what I kind of quickly realized is like, you know, Still a comp sci guy. I haven't written a lot of code in years, but like I'm a tech junkie. And so like I wanted to be involved with a software company because you still get to do, you know, the client interaction. You still get to be focused on the industry. You get to do a lot of consulting and helping solve hard business problems and make people's lives and businesses better. Um, and you still get your tech fix. So after a few months, I, I knew it's technologies where I needed to be in a software company made sense. Um I actually looked possibly at exiting the oil and gas world, right I mean, like yeah. we, you know during covid right the the negative oil price for a period of time it was just it wasn 't necessarily a lucrative market, and so I was like, maybe I should look at software outside of oil and gas, um but I love the oil and gas world right I mean contrary to to popular belief, fossil fuels are needed and aren 't going anywhere um and i I love the ability to to leverage technology to make our industry better and so ultimately when Kevin and I reconnected, and it was oil and gas focused still, and his technology kind of checked all the boxes. And you know, it feels like it felt like home, and it's it's definitely home now for sure.
0: So I've got, I mean, I know Jeremy, you, you're very familiar with Spirit Data. I'm not. Yeah. But can we back up? What does Spirit Data do?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Jeremy kind of alluded to it a bit. So we have we have what we call ORP, right? It's a it's an operations resource platform. So kind of simplistically, you know, the way we kind of describe it is a lot of customers will have a CRM tool, right? So the sales guys are using the Salesforce or Dynamics or whatever they're using. And then you have accounting, which might be QuickBooks or SAP or Oracle or whoever. You know, everything in between is kind of where we fit, right? So we, we like to say ORP is effectively the ERP for operations. Um, so it is a field management solution. So, We've got a number of, of customers that we service. You know, predominantly in the oil and gas world. Have a lot of field services companies. You know, some operators. Um, you know, and a number of variety of other kind of customers, kind of across the spectrum. But the guys who run it. So a customer calls and says, "Hey, I need you to do a workover on this on on this well." Or I need you. You know, we've got hydrovac companies that do you know precision drilling or, or digging with you know water and vacuums, right? And so. They all run this in customer calls. They, they basically say, okay, what do you need? They put it in. They able to give them a quote or a bid. You know, they can create work orders, purchase orders. And then once that's accepted, you know, they've got their price books for that customer, all the contracts, MSAs, et cetera. Once the customer says, great, when can you be here? There's a scheduling piece. You go and you look at all of your assets, your people, your equipment, um, your inventory, and you schedule it, right? You've got it directly in the system. Um, You're scheduling, you're looking at where everyone's at. And then ultimately you dispatch it. So it could be Jeremy's a supervisor with a crew of ten. I dispatch it to Jeremy, or I dispatch it to the people. I dispatch the equipment. So now you know where all of your people equipment is dispatched, scheduled out, and then so now they're out and they're doing whatever function it is: a workover, drilling, digging, laying concrete, um, I mean whatever whatever they're doing, right? Um, and they're out in the field, and there's a technology, a mobile component, right? So your phone, tablet. Um, Laptop in a disconnected state, they're keeping track of all the labor equipment and material that's going on. So, hours, widgets being used, et cetera. Um, And then, once that's all done, you can get signatures out in the field from either a company man or when operators run it, you know, they kind of conglomerate it back and are getting the service providers to to send it. But then you can route it around for approval and then ultimately invoice. Um, So, then, you know, if you're a service provider, you, you have all the information, you know how much labor was spent, you know how many you know, the runtime of the rigs or or whatever the equipment being used is. Um, And you ultimately invoice it to the customer. Um, You know, that's kind of the heart of it. Um, There's payroll capabilities too, right? So, you you know, a lot of these companies have, you know, hourly employees. And so those guys are putting in, you know, they log in their phone and say, hey, I worked eight hours. And so we have all that information because it's revenue that you're going to bill back to the customer, even though it's a cost to you. Um, And so you can have payroll within the system. Um, a lot of safety certifications, making sure if I'm getting ready to deploy Tim out to do, you know, a master welding job, does he have the master welding certificate or qualifications? Yeah. so marrying the people to the jobs. Um, so it really is a lot of back office management of your assets and people, and then capturing everything that's happening in the field in a centralized system. Um, you know, to hope, to run your business, and you're getting real time optics and, and being able to make decisions based off of you know really what's going on.
0: Oh, what, cool. about, what about some of the Um, areas that are
1: just really remote and and don't have service, like obviously you have a GPS component and and you're, you know, kind of tapped into where people are at any given time. What happens when you're in a no service area?
2: Yeah, great question. So you're right. We do have like a work alone feature, right? Like if you're in the middle of nowhere or especially, you know, in the Canadian market, you might be in the middle of nowhere and it's freezing. And so it pings you every hour and you got to make sure you check in so people know, you know, you're safe um but we purposely built the application so you know it is a SaaS cloud-based offering but you know whether it's a tablet phone or a laptop version it works in a disconnected state so you know if you have an apple phone you go to the iOS store you download you, you download spear fi if you know, you're on android you go to the google play store you download it and so it works in a disconnected state so if you are in the middle of nowhere bill um you still have the ability to run the software and then the second it has connectivity it automatically synchronizes nice. it sends your information gets your new dispatch information so it is purposely built because you know you, you don't typically drill a well in the middle of denver right it's it's kind of in the outskirts where there's typically you know it's getting better and you know, a lot of these companies will have you know wi-fi capabilities but there's no satellite around you still can't use it and so we purposely when this was built you know 18 years ago that was before we had the coverage we have today, and so it was built with that in mind from the very inception.
1: Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, I've been in the mobile apps game a little more on the lease operator side, but it, it fundamentally makes sense. I mean, the the ability to operate by exception, I think, is inherently kind of ESG. We've talked about this a little bit too, right? Like ESG, you know, is a is a very wide. Swap right, like you, there's so much that you could say is or isn't ESG. To me, things like this where you're you're right at the the tip of the spear, right? If you can prevent somebody from driving extra miles and putting more methane into the atmosphere, that's great, right? And your product gets people moving in that direction. What do, what do companies do that don't have an, an ORP type system? Is it just like? like literally things written out by hand. uh, Probably, Yeah. Right.
2: It it is. So like scheduling is definitely, you know, a big whiteboard in the conference room, right? You might have like little magnets you're moving around and, you know, it's it's kind of a kid game. Um, but out in the field, you're right. Like paper, paper is still what it is. Right. You know, you fill out a paper ticket, you stick it in the Mason jar on site and then the company man picks it up or, yeah. I mean, like I would say my biggest competitor is paper or Excel. Um, so it's, and that's where, I mean, you know, you kind of were alluding to it a bit, like, you know, so focusing on the field versus kind of the back office, you know, like I did in my prior life. Um, that's where I feel like technology, like the the field, like there's a lot of really, really good technologies, but it's more for like, how do I know exactly where that drill bit is going? Or how do I actually, you know, how do I extract the gas, but not necessarily help run an operation? Sure. Um, and so I feel like the service companies, technology is very under service for those guys, right? And some of it's adoption, right? You know, the guy's done it for 20, 30 years, loves writing on his, you know, his tablet or on a piece of paper and, and, you know, isn't necessarily interested in technology. But, you know, generally speaking, right, oil and gas has kind of been behind the eight ball on technology um, adoption compared to other industries. And I'd say the field, unfortunately, hasn't been serviced as much, which is actually really fun to, to kind of help push Definitely. technology and make their lives so much easier. Cause some of these guys, right? Like they, they finish their job and they have to drive an hour back to the office so then write or key all this stuff in and then drive home. Well, now it's on their phone. They just, as they're driving home, push submit. Right. And so it's making their work life balance better and not a whole lot of just extra driving. Um, and on the ESG front, same thing, right? So if I'm, if those guys are driving an hour less a day, cause then I'll go back to the office cause it's technology enabled. That's helping. Um, you know, they have auditability in the system, so you know what's going on. In fact, I had a, had a conversation with a, um, a soon to be customer yesterday in the scheduling component, he said the same thing. He's like, you know, we had two rigs and they basically cross paths on the highway because they were going to the next site instead of just,
1: wow. they were already
2: on site, just move it over. And so things like that helps you run a more efficient business, but then it also is good for, you know, the environment, et cetera. So there's a, there's a lot of benefits in being able to have technology enabled operations like this.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's, go ahead, Tim. I was just going to say one of the key enablers is, you know, there was a time when nobody had a phone
1: that yeah.
0: you know, you're moving around with. And now I don't care how much of a laggard you are in technology, resisting changes. And I want to write everything down. People are just used to checking in with their Chick fil A app. They're yeah. just getting used to that. And it's got to enable, reduce the barrier entry for, Services like you're providing.
2: It, it absolutely does. You know, and there, there's still some pushback. So some companies still want to, you know, they have a master data management policy, right? You know, here's a tablet, but you can't go surf the web on it, right? They'll have it locked down. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it, that's why it's such an easy adoption because I'm not asking you to go and learn some really complicated system, right? I mean, if you know how to log in and, and check in and order on Chick fil A, you know how to go and put some cost and revenue items on the ticket that you're actually doing on the field. I mean, it's, it's, we purposely made it, it's a, a good looking piece of software, but it's simple, right? We don't have a lot of bells and whistles on it. It's just brass packs. These are guys in the field. They don't want to see a bunch of, you know, frivolous stuff for the for the sake of, you know, just having bells and whistles. We put it at their fingertips. They put it in and off they go. Because ultimately, I don't, no one wants these guys spending an hour doing admin tasks. You want them right. drilling or, or working over or whatever their job is, like not monkeying with software, right? And so- That's really what the focus has been is making sure we enable them to do their jobs, do it better, and still have accurate operational activity and data for the people who need it, right? So,
1: I think broadly the electronic ticketing uh, ORP space is ripe for consolidation. There's just so many sort of small players out there that I wasn't even aware that Spira has like 70 or 75 customers, right? But there's a few of these companies like you look at Engage, Engage probably has 20, 30 customers. We got ClearGistics. Steven Toops was on this about a year ago talking about how there's only 20 to 25% of all of the field is actually digitized, right? Just in terms of field tickets. And I think we're trending more in that direction, but like this was not an area that was being covered. And then all of a sudden it's like open ticket and you guys and and Engage and ClearGistics and the Ironside. And it's like, there's all these different companies. So like, how do you differentiate, aside from the fact that, of course, you guys are smart people, you've done this before, like, what's the, what's the differentiator? Why does somebody go with you as opposed to some of these other guys?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I would say the, the breadth and depth of, of the offering, um, you know, I know it's probably a, a pretty standard answer, but, you know, a lot of our customers, like when I talk about everything from scheduling, dispatching, ticketing, safety, et cetera, like, you know, there's a lot of different features and functions of the system. And, and to be honest, only one or maybe a couple customers use the entire gambit of the solution. Yeah. Um, so a lot of customers will say, you know what, I just, I need to get off of paper. I need ticketing. And then they say, you know what, now that I have that, now I'd like to actually do invoices out of your system. And then, you know, maybe phase three is like, well, great. It'd be great if I could do payroll. And so I feel like with what we offer, it's not just the ticketing. Right. So I mean, like, the the people you list, like we compete in certain areas, but I don't feel like any of them can do, you know, kind of the end to end that we can. Um, And a lot of times what our customers will do is, you know, we'll, we'll come in and maybe put it in for sort of, you know, kind of the must have stuff they need. But then the rationalization of their application footprint makes it easy because all of a sudden, like, well, we had a system for this, this, and this, and you just replace three systems with yours. And so I feel like a lot of what we actually have a lot of success with is being able to rationalize an IP footprint because of the the amount of scope that we can handle within the system. And then it's also a true turnkey SaaS software, right? So it's not this kind of software that I have to come in and do a whole lot of customization or development to put it in. It really is configuration, training, and off you go. And so the the ability to get in it and rapidly take advantage of it, I, I think really distinguishes us from most of our competition who typically has to have a massive upfront capital project to make it successful and work for a business.
0: So it strikes me that Spiridata and even Quorum for the most most of their time are primarily North American by that, I mean, US and Canadian type of of uh, clientele. Is that, do I have that right? Or are you guys looking out internationally? Are there other locations where you guys are going beyond North America?
2: Yeah, no, great question. I would I would say North America is our focus, right? I mean, we're about 50 50 right now between the states and U S. from a client standpoint. Um, we do have some, you know, non North American customers. Um, those are kind of more opportunistic, right? Someone has three rigs, sells it to a company, and they say, hey, you should probably use this software. So, you know, if if someone called and had the need, like I'd absolutely entertain the opportunity. But I'm not necessarily focusing on developing the field market in australia as an example so i mean north america is our focus
0: well you know and if you go that route you never get any uh, business trips to dubai or anything like that so that's that's one (laughs) drawback (laughs) is that a drawback i don't know i don't know on my trips dubai is one of my favorite favorite stops i love it that's fantastic
1: um well, I think, Jason, before we pivot into some of the the kind of lighter stuff um, with this podcast, my, my last question really about Spira is, like, from from your perspective, like looking at Kevin, right, this is a 18-year-old startup, right? It's it's effectively still run extremely lean. Um, you ha- You guys have good clients. Like, what is it about all of a sudden in year 17, Kevin decides, all right, now we're going to step on the gas?
2: Yeah, good. So... I would say, so so it's 18 years old, right? So Kevin took the helm in 14. So it's been about eight years or so since he kind of came back in and took it over. And I'll kind of skip the whole history of how, you know, how it came to be in the the beginning. Um, But so it was originally kind of an enterprise on-prem type application. And then like early, like, you know, before most people started saying SaaS, you know, Kevin had the foresight with, you know, with the board and everyone else who, who was around at the time to truly make it a SaaS cloud solution, right, before kind of it was a cool thing to do. Um, So a big part of that was really a development-focused organization, right, making sure the product is there. We already had customers, but, you know, you're kind of changing into the next generation of of what technology is. You know, and so once that was established, you know, there's been kind of a pivot into being more of, you know, kind of a a marketing and sales-driven organization because, you know, you're not building some vaporware that you just sold someone, you have a sound product. And now it's just a matter of educating and, and executing, right? And selling. So, um, you know, when Kevin asked me to come to Spira, I mean, cause you know, if you look at just the market, right. I mean, Canada, Canada is a great market, but just by size, right. The U S is, is much larger. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't really an executive presence. And so that's where a lot of it was like, Hey, come on. And i you know, help kind of build, build it in the U S. Um, which, you know, kind of it's been fun. It's, you know, I, I do something different every day, right? You know, some days I'm doing a demonstration myself or, um, you know, working on marketing collateral or, you know, talking to existing customers. I and mean, it's, you do a lot of different things, but it, it ended up kind of turning into, um, you know, more than the U S right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm working a lot in Canada, um, now too, There's just kind of a, a chain of events that ended up just kind of doing that. And so, um, recently Kevin actually asked me to, you know, kind of take a, take a step up and not just, you know, help with the U S but, you know, kind of, be a lot involved with running the business. Um, You know, instead of being VP of U.S. operations, actually take the president title and and actually really help run the business. Um, So thank you. Congratulations, Um,
1: sir. That's cool.
2: Yeah, no, thank you. Um, Which, you know, titles are great, but like, I'm still doing exactly what I was doing before. Um, But (laughs) to kind of get back to answering your question is like, you know, it's just a matter of like educating and actually executing a a sales driven organization now because it's in the back of the truck and it works. We just got to, you know, got to sell it now. Um, and a lot of people, you know, call it Spira, right? So if someone says, Hey, you know, what do you do at Spira? It's like, well, if you call it Spira, you don't, you definitely don't know it. But (laughs) people didn't know we existed. And so, you know, our number one goal is really just to make sure people know, because if if I get an at bat, you know, a bake off, I I feel like we come out on top more often than not. And so it's just making sure people know that we have a, a viable option.
1: Well, I think you've, you've done a nice job of that, right? I mean, it's, it's really, you know, the perspective that I have as a consultant is, is so much different now being a part of the organization when you see something from the outside. I just thought this was a onesie, twosie company, right? Now having been exposed to it, it's like, man, these guys are professionals. This product is legit. And these guys are serious, right? Like it, it, takes, a, it takes that drive from the executive team to say, hey, you know what? We were on cruise control for a while and it was great. Now we're passing, right? Now we're hitting the left lane. So I have a lot of respect for that. Um, let's talk about sales presentations, yeah. things that have potentially gone wrong. You know, we call this podcast tripping over the barrel. And I don't, you probably didn't listen to the first or second episode. But, um, you know, it, it's sort of the, the genesis is like you know, me and Tim, we have a million different things. Tim had a rip in his pants and had to hide uh, as, he, as he left the room. I was doing this like big, passionate presentation to BHP Bill. And I sit down, my butt hits the seat. The seat flies back. Next thing you see all is like my feet up in the air at a yeah. round table with a bunch of execs. People like, are, are you okay? Man? Like, I want to laugh, but I can't. Anything crazy like that happened to you, whether it was physical comedy or just a disaster of a demo that, that you were a part of?
2: You know it. I can't say I've actually fallen out of a chair, you know, gone, you know, head over heels. Um, you know, obviously everyone always has the technology challenges, right. Or, you know, click this button and the software bombs and like, those are all kinds of things that happen. Um, I would say one of the more memorable ones, um, we were doing, so this is probably like late 2000s, you know, probably 2007, 2008, you know, renewables kind of started becoming a hot topic. All of a sudden the government's giving renewable energy credits. And so, you know, we started teetering into the energy or the renewable space with some of the existing products. And so we were starting to do tours and like, you know, typical oil and gas towns, right? Houston, Midland, Denver, et cetera. That's not where your typical wind or, you know, renewable companies are, right? I mean, there's a ton of them in like the Northeastern area, like in Manhattan, right? So we had like six meetings lined up in Manhattan. I was meeting another guy who's actually still at quorum and we're just doing like demo after demo. And then we got a call like, hey, we just got a flyer like, Hey, do you guys want to go show it to him? So, you know, we show up and sit down and go through the whole slide deck. Like, you know, here's who we are and why we're great. And here's kind of an overview of what we're about to show you in the software. And you're like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that's kind of like managing assets. I, I, wouldn't did an operation system to like manage like the cockpit for like the wind turbine generation. (laughs) And so like, we looked at each other, we're like, yeah, sorry, we're, we're, we're in the wrong meeting. Like, I, I have no idea how we ended up there. It was just like a last second thing, but like it was, I felt that's, pretty silly because like you're, you're here, like you, you got your game face on, you're presenting and you're like, what the hell are you talking about? Right. It wasn't even the right, <laughs> wasn't even the right wheelhouse of what they were looking for.
1: T- Tim, that's like the light version of Matt Wilcoxon's flying his team to ah. Europe. 15 minutes in, they're like, what are you guys doing here?
0: Like you got nothing to sell to us. Uh, that was a funny. I mean, I've been in a few of those where you fly out, someone sets something up and they don't, you think you've been briefed and you show up and then either everything's changed between when you took off and landed or that you, they were just, Hey, I got a meeting. Come on in. Someone set it up. We used to have a, an appointment setting group. And all they were trying to do is they, just, they would just call and, Oh, I got somebody. It's got the right title for you. Yeah. You show up and the guy, you walk in, the guy goes, yeah, I said yes to this meeting. I have no idea why. And I, oh boy.
1: And then, he, then he goes to his phone. But even back then, people didn't have phones. So they would just blatantly, like brazenly, get
0: up and leave
2: the room. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, I had once uh, back in the day, back when there was uh, PI data before, and now yeah. part of IHS. Yeah. I went in and the guy says, Do you guys have a reader for PI or PI data? And I was like, That's about, we're about six months away from having that ready. He literally, and I remember the guy's name, I won't say it out loud. He just put his head on the back wall, closed his eyes, and went to sleep. <laughs> the rep, everyone else in the meeting paid attention. And when the meeting broke, the guy in the front row said, that was unfortunate. That's the VP. Yeah, of course.
1: Right. Well, this meeting didn't matter for shit. Tim, I have to say, I have to say this because you, you were involved in this too. What like one of the earlier career like awful losses that I had was to quorum at Ultra. Remember that for AFE workflow? Yeah. I was like, they should go with us. It doesn't make sense. They weren't a quorum shop. And they went with it. And that was like, I didn't understand why that happened, right? It was like one of those losses where it took me so long to to rationalize, right? But I think that what the what the quorum team did well then was not focus on their competition. I mean, this is very much like an Amazon type approach, but as I've gotten to know the, the Sarouches, the Cameron's and the Jason's and so on and so forth. They, I don't think that you guys actually focused on the competition. Like I think a lot of competition actually focused on you. Um, Bolo was always focused on Excalibur. They get acquired. P2 was always focused on Quorum, right? Inertia was probably focused on beating P2, beating you guys. You know, I've spent time with you. I don't hear you talk about like, it was about, beating the competition. It seems like the focus was more on driving value for the customer. And I think that there's a real lesson to be learned from that. Was that like a conscious way of doing business where you guys said this is a customer focused thing, not a competition um, with the other vendors? Or like, how did that sort of manifest? Because I've, I've noticed organizationally, Sarush the same way, you guys are not focused on how to be better. You're focused on creating value.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, again, I haven't been at Quorum for a, a bit, but, um, it, yeah, it was, it was conscious. Um, you know, I, I, we like to be confident, not cocky, right? No one likes the cocky guys who come in. Um, but no one likes people who are, who are second guessing either. Right. And so, you know, originally it was, it was Quorum business solutions, not Quorum software, because it really was focusing on driving value. Right. And if you actually make the customer's job better, enabling them with technology, the rest of it will take care of itself. Right. I mean, I don't need to come in and tell you like why, you know, my muscles are bigger than the other guy or how they're going to flounder. Or, like, you know, I, I don't today, like it's And a lot of what I learned, I've brought with me to Spira. Like, I don't like the negative sell right? I mean, like, if I come in and I'm talking about the competition, one, I'm actually giving them airtime and two, yeah. like I just let my money, I'll put my money where my mouth is and, and, you know, let my technology speak for itself. Um, so it, it was conscious, um, there, you know, for me personally, I did, it is like, I that that's just how it is, right? I mean, if I've got the best solution, but it's not right for you, like that, you know, that makes sense. Like, and, you know, there are times you'll lose like an ultra, um, maybe because of a relationship someone has with the CEO of a competition, right? So that kind of stuff happens. Um, so you can't get too fussed about it and really just focus on what you can control and that's making their business better and, and just showing them, hey, here's how you run your business with my software. And more often than not, it actually works out well, assuming you got a good piece of technology, right?
0: I think in my, my you know, lessons that I've learned through the years, you start to come off pretty defensive when you do focus on how do I beat Aries and you start to come off a little defensive and that just doesn't look good the whole way through.
2: Agreed.
1: And as far as something that you can't control, and I asked you this last night at dinner, like, and hopefully you were able to give this some thought, but what what advice would you give to your younger self, whether that be 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago when you graduated college? Like, what would it be?
2: You know, I, I have thought about it quite a bit since dinner, and, you know, because my, my gut reaction, and it's still really my answer, is, you know, do what you said you were going to do, right? And, and, and I say that because, like, I thought about it, I was like, well, it's not like I didn't do what I said I was going to do yeah. younger, but, like, do what you say you're going to do and don't be scared to to do it. Cause I mean, a lot of times you get tossed into a job and like you're over your head, but so are most people when they first get that kind of a job. Right. And so don't be scared, make decisions, learn from them. You know, it, we kind of pick on Kevin cause he, he's got a thing he calls the say do ratio. Um, and you know, it's, it, it's kind of the do what you say you're going to do. Like what you say versus what you do. Like if, if you do a hundred percent of what you say, then you got a hundred percent say do ratio if you're all talk and never deliver you know say oh yeah i'll get that and you never do then you have a really low say do ratio and mm. so i would say to the younger self do what you say you're going to do you know strive to have a hundred percent say-do ratio um and ultimately you know be honest right if you can't do it don't say you can or say okay. i don't think i can but i'm going to try and so being open honest transparent 100 percent integrity and do as much as you say you're going to do as humanly possible is what i would tell my younger self and i tell myself that today still
0: there's the mentor
1: lesson of the day, right there, Jeremy. I mean, it's it's a it's a good one, and you know, you, you said a few things that the the say do. I'm definitely going to use that. I think there's
2: yeah, absolutely. We we pick on Kevin because um, he brings it comes out of the woodwork every now and then. But I told him I was going to say it on this podcast, it'll be it'll it'll spread.
1: Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> I, Tim. I think we talked about this. But this might have been Saru or somebody else a few weeks back. But um, beyond just saying like you know, yes, I committed to this and and I'm going to do it. Like, I do think that one of the lessons I would have taught myself is like, it's okay to be like, I don't know, and go find somebody who does. For some reason, I was like afraid to do that. Like I thought it was weakness. and made me look bad even in front of you, Tim. Like I should know the answer. But really, it's the better answer is to say, I don't know. Let me get somebody who does, right? It builds more appreciation, respect, trust with the customer than if you just answer every question haphazardly.
0: Well, you know, I had a sales guy that was, I was kind of working. I was his caddy. I followed him around and did demos. Yeah. And he said, okay, Tim, here's the strategy here. We're going into Halliburton. They're going to ask a bunch of questions. Leave at least two of them unanswered. Nice. Even if you know the answer. And he said, because that gives me a reason to follow up and we can answer get Another voice and answer those questions. And i like, well, I mean, I didn't know the answers, but I left it alone. But it does... It does bring back the, you know, if you don't know, just relax, we'll get the answer for you.
2: Yeah, that's the, uh, so I I 100% agree. And especially the kind of in the role I had at Quorum and absolutely, you know, kind of the role I have now is if you answer it incorrectly, you know, a typical sales guy be like, yeah it's the, the project team's gonna have to deal with that one. But like when you're an executive, guess who, and you say that, or, you know, your team says it, you still have accountability after the sale is complete to deliver and so, it does zero good to tell someone something if you don't know the answer, especially if it ends up being the wrong answer, because you have to have accountability for that.
1: You know, yep. your, your title was VP U.S. operations, I think. And now you're going to be promoted to to president. You know, I, what's fascinating to me, I know you now. You're not the kind of guy that cares about titles, but I do think perception sometimes can be reality. I think ever since I changed my own title. The CEO, I get into some different conversations because some people just look and say, well, if they have that title, I can talk to them. Right. So I, I think that there's, yes, it's a little bit of signaling internally, but you're also viewed different externally. People talk to you differently based on title. It's never something that I've done. So it's a little bit bizarre to me, but I've definitely noticed it even just in the last year and a half that it's like, oh, well, you, you must be a special guy. It's like, no, just have a title. That's all.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, like, I mean, there's a reason every financial advisor and banker in the world has a VP title, right? Every world. I'm, talking every to world. Those, I'm talking to a VP, right. Even though they just graduated college. Right. So I agree. There's something to be said with like, Oh I'm talking to the president or the C C whatever. Right. I mean, I, I agree. Um, but you're right. Like, yeah, it's good to be able to say, Hey, yeah, I'm president. Like, you know, I'm really excited and proud of that. But like, I'm more proud of making sure Spira is a well-run company and we actually get to it. So like, you can call me a janitor as long as we're actually, you know, making this company bigger, better, and more valuable for our customers. So, yeah, it's well, nice, but not, not stuck on it.
1: You know, Tim, I can't believe I, I, I didn't realize this earlier. You should have some advice for Jason because you've done exactly this, right? A company that sort of started to see, well, we've owned the Canadian market. Where's the upside? U.S. Now we need to bring on a VP U.S. operations pseudo president and start to expand out down there. I don't putting you on the spot with this, but is there any advice from the eight years or whatever you had at Navigator that you'd you'd pass on to Jason or somebody in Jason's shoes? Well, I think the the, well, I mean, I
0: think for us having the product ready for the competition that we were going to be facing. So we had two products. One was going to have a very stiff competition breaking into the market. The other was ready. So I just revamped the whole thing and just said, look, we're going to go after this market until yeah. the other one's ready. Um, so making sure that we had the right product and understood the nuance. Okay. We all speak the same language between Canada and U uh, S but we don't really, yeah. there's a, there is a difference in the way people interact with each other, talk to each other, title match, you know, yeah. Hey, we we have, VP needs to talk to VP and all that. So some of those little nuances were difficult to communicate across the border with my bosses. So understanding that in that first year was was, uh, was a little difficult. But I think, you know, I, you, you did put me on the spot, I'd probably give me a half hour and come up with better answers. But, <laughs> I love it. Um, I love doing that. But you know, it, it, having the right product that can cross the border, I think that's, There's a whole lot of companies that have hit that border, tried to come across and just never made it.
1: I always always wondered like how much you actually shielded us from stuff too, like how much negativity or questioning of people or the strategy or why are we doing this in the U.S. if we're not making money yet, you know, and how much of that we didn't actually see or hear because you served as a buffer. Like I, I think that was, and I don't know, but I'm just guessing that was probably something you're like, well, the shit has to stop rolling at some point. I can't just let it dump on my guys.
0: I'm That's probably not going to comment on that.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jason Webster, man, this was a good time. Where can people find you find spirit data?
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously the, the LinkedIn, um, you know, there, but you know, the website, spiradata.com. um, email address is Jason dot Webster at Um, yeah, I, it's been a blast, uh, you know, both Jeremy, Tim. I, I appreciate you guys having, having me on. Um, yeah, it's been it's – been, I didn't think it was not going to be fun, but it's actually been way more entertaining and enjoyable than, than I actually thought it was going to be. So I really appreciate it. Uh,
0: uh, we're glad to have you on.
1: Typically, when somebody you, does one, one of these, it's, it starts to set off an avalanche. Like, you'll be doing
0: these podcasts every week.
2: <laughs>
0: now, he, You yeah, haven't he yeah. been on uh, Wildcatters or startups or anything like that yet, right?
2: no we haven't we I, I, we've talked we've talked to those guys i'd like to in fact um I, i'm kind of bending my ceos here next time he's in, in in houston maybe we can actually do that but like i said my number one goal for for this year is making sure people know what spirit is and it exists and so doing things like this is not only fun but also you know good for business so I, again i appreciate it all
0: right thanks, just know brother. you us first that's what i want credit for. right <laughs> always
2: that's right you're <laughs> all the first.
1: Right. thanks guys. Oh, 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 oh,